Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We always appreciate you listening every week at this same time for Bible Crossfire. Um, we know that John 8, verse 32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Talking about being made free from sin. So false religious teaching won't make us free from sin. In religion, 2 plus 2 cannot equal 4 and 5 at the same time. Now, many preachers and churches will say it is, that everybody teaches different things, and they're all right. But no, 2 plus 2 can't equal 4 and 5. Only the truth is going to set us free from sin. So we go about to try to investigate, find out the truth of God's word. I say God's word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Investigate God's word to find God's truth. And we're going to try to preach that truth, contend for that truth, because it's the only thing that will set us free from sin. So if you have a Bible question or comment, you can get on the air, 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755 is the number to call if you have a Bible question or comment. While we're waiting on our first call, I thought we'd talk about Christ in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7. Let me read that, Isaiah 53, 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, But he, talking about Christ, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. First of all, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Christ written hundreds of years before he came. And it's all about the suffering and torturous death of Christ. Verse 5 says he was wounded and bruised. Well, that, to me, that's like the understatement of the year. He wasn't just wounded and bruised. He was crucified. You know, in this history, this part of the world... The way they executed criminals was through hanging. Um, I mean, if you've watched any westerns on TV at all, you know that's the way they they executed criminals, hanging, murderers. But now, like in Alabama, where I'm from, we still have the death penalty, but the electric chair is how they execute a murderer in Alabama. Some churches have lethal injection. They're trying to execute the criminal, the murderer, with the least amount of pain possible. But the crucifixion was exactly the opposite of that. They were trying to execute the murderer, the criminal, with the most amount of pain possible. Horrific amount of pain. I mean, the Bible says in John 19, he was scourged. Three words. You might overlook that. But scourging was like, take a whip with many tails. Tie rocks or bones to the ends of it. And basically just rip the flesh right off the back of the criminal. Uh, of the criminal, And that's what they did to Jesus. The horrific amount of pain Jesus had to go through. The torturous death. I'm, I'm told that we get the word excruciating from the word crucified. You think about Jesus. We might say he had it made in heaven. He left that lofty position became a man, a servant at that, knowing full well he's going to have to suffer through this horrifically painful death. He must have loved us an awful lot to be willing to do that. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, I want us to learn to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. A lot of these lessons we do here on this 
on this program, Bible Crossfire, doctrinal in nature. What does the Bible teach about gay marriage or women preachers or baptism? This lesson is a little bit less doctrinal and more motivational. Let's talk about the suffering and death of Christ. Look what he's done for us. And the more we learn, study about that, the more we learn to appreciate that, I, I think the better motivated we're going to be to serve him faithfully. So that maybe in a few weeks when we're studying some doctrinal position and we find out what the Bible has to say about that, we're going to be more willing to change if we need to and believe and practice what the Bible says because we have a better appreciation for what Jesus did for us. Look what he what he was willing to sacrifice for us. We should be willing to make sacrifices for him. The last part of verse 5 says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. You know, that means that Jesus was punished so we could have peace with God. Or Jesus was punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. You see what I mean about appreciating what Jesus has done for us? If you have a Bible question or comment, don't hesitate to call us. Any Bible subject is fair game. 877-655-6755 is the number to call. If you want to get on the air, Bible question or a comment, call us at 877-655-6755. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sometimes I think we may uh, underestimate that statement there. Let's talk about the magnitude of that. The Lord, God laid upon Jesus the sin of us all. You know, sometimes I say that um, the greatest accomplishment in the history of the world is Jesus going 33 years without one sin. I mean, I can barely go 33 hours without committing a sin. But I think let's just use that as a round number. Here's a guy that sins once a day. He only sins once a day. We would probably think of that as a pretty good person. But if you think about it, that's a good person. But if he lives 80 years, how many sins is that going to be? That's going to be almost 30,000 sins. And that's who somebody we consider to be a good guy. How about somebody like Adolf Hitler? He probably sins thousands. He probably sinned thousands of times per day. So over the course of his lifetime, he sinned hundreds of thousands of sins. So you take of all, all the sins of all of mankind from Adam and Eve till now. Every single person. And let's just say the earth lasts another 10,000 years. You take all of those sins, we're talking about billions and billions of sins, and they're all laid upon Jesus. Now, we're not talking about the guilt of those sins on Jesus. No, he was the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. We're talking about Jesus taking the responsibility for those sins. As verse 5 is talking about, he takes the punishment for our sins. You see what I mean about appreciating what Jesus has done for us? The one without sin takes all these sins, billions and billions of sins upon himself. He takes the punishment for them all, even though he didn't commit one sin. And then verse 7, still talking about Jesus, says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. You know, Jesus is being compared to a lamb here. A lamb... I'm told if you're taking it to slaughter, he doesn't know what's coming. He's not going to object. He's not smart enough to know what's coming. Jesus was like that. Not that Jesus didn't know what was coming. But Jesus, he's being led to the slaughter and he didn't argue his case. Suppose Jesus had had a, a fair judge and he had argued his case effectively. Would he have been declared innocent or guilty? Well, he'd have been declared innocent. He didn't commit a sin, much less a crime. So why didn't he argue his case? 
Well, didn't argue his case because if he had gotten off the hook, if he had won the case, that would have thwarted the whole mission of why he came here to start with. So Jesus, knowing this, knowing he's innocent, didn't argue his case. You think about, this is something we ought to appreciate. I mean, let's suppose you came down here to Alabama and visited me for a week. And I don't know, maybe you live a thousand miles from here and you went to church with me on Wednesday night. And maybe a thousand people there saw you, not a thousand, but a hundred people there saw you at church. And you go back to where you live a thousand miles away and a murder has been committed on that Wednesday night at seven o'clock. And you, uh, you're sitting there on trial and they're going to execute you if they prove you guilty. But, and you got a hundred witnesses saying you were a thousand miles away. At church, when the murder was created, when it's committed, you think it would be easy just to sit there and say nothing when you know you could easily prove your innocence? I don't think I could do that, but isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus could easily have proved his innocence, and he just sat there and said nothing. Why? Not for his own sake, but because he wanted to die for us. We need to learn to appreciate these things, what Jesus is willing to go through for us. Because the more we appreciate it, the more we're going to be willing to serve him faithfully. If you've got a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. That number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. How about 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19? It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Here we have the word redeemed. How might we use the word redeemed in everyday life today? Well, I've never really used a pawn shop, but here's how I think it works. You go and you want to borrow $100, and you got to bring $110 back in two weeks. 10% interest in two weeks, quite steep. But you got to leave something there, say a valuable watch, so that if you don't ever come back, they can sell the watch and recover their $100. So you go back two weeks later and you you bring the $110, you redeem the watch, you buy it back. That's what Jesus did for us. We're in, we're in, the, in effect, the clutches of the devil. No way we can get out of it. We're in there because of our own sin. Jesus redeems us. He buys us back. But not with money, not with silver and gold. Something much more valuable than that is precious blood. So we're in the clutches of the devil because of our sin, we can't escape. We're on our lost and on our way to the bad place, and Jesus redeems us with his blood. We need to be appreciate that. Notice that, that it's a, he's of a lamb without blemish. It doesn't mean he was without physical defect as the lamb in the Old Testament. It means without spiritual defect. Jesus had to live perfectly to be qualified to die for our sins. That's something else we need to appreciate. The greatest accomplishment in the history of the world, living 33 years without sin, he had to do that to be qualified to die for our sins. We need to appreciate that, serving faithfully because of out of appreciation. Tony from Wyoming, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, sir. I was wondering, whenever you lose a partner, a, a wife or a husband, and both of y'all are born-again Christians, so do you, are you a man and wife again in heaven, or are you just... Uh, saints in heaven i didn't first of all explaining romans 7 2 and 3 says you're bound to your spouse basically as long as she lives the wife is bound to the husband as long as he lives obligated and it goes on to say that if her husband dies she's free to remarry 
So it's possible to have more than one wife scripturally in this life. If your wife dies, you can marry again. If that second wife dies, you could have a third wife. Mm-hmm. So understand that. Mm-hmm. in Matthew 22, the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, present a case that's similar to that. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the Leverite marriage vow. In, in the Old Testament, if a brother died without any children, then the, the second brother was required to marry the wife to try to bring up seed for his brother. And they bring up a scenario that happened seven times. So this woman has been married to seven brothers. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection, in the afterlife? We might say in heaven. And here's right. Jesus' answer to this hypothetical situation. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. He says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, he's talking about the afterlife, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So he's saying exactly what you said, Tony, that when you get to heaven, there won't be any marriage. You won't be, you won't be married to the wife you had in this life. You'll just be a Christian, single, we mm-hmm. might say. There are no marriages in heaven according to this. Okay. And that solves that dilemma. What if you had three wives? Well, whose wife, husband would you be in, in heaven? You'll be none of them. That's kind of the question here, but it's a little bit different, but that's basically the question. Here's a woman that had seven husbands. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection in the afterlife? said, nobody's. There is no marriage in heaven. Does that answer your question, Tony? Matthew 22, verse 29 and following, okay? Yes, sir. Could I ask you one more question? So You certainly can, Tony. Whenever... Whenever you pass away and, and you're buried in your grave, and the the, the Bible says that to, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. So the body's still in the grave, correct? But the spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. Is that correct? Yes. A per- person's spirit goes to heaven immediately, but the body stays in the grave, right? Okay, the body stays in the grave, mm-hmm. and the spirit goes to Hades at this point right now. If you turn to Luke 16, Tony, mm-hmm. Luke 16, 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 31, you see two people die, the rich man and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're rich and poor, but the rich man evidently had not been living faithful to God. So he goes to Hades, he's in torment. The right. Lazarus is not necessarily because he's poor, but because evidently he was faithful to God. He goes to hate the good part of Hades, the comfort part of Hades. Oh. So when people die today before the judgment day, they go to Hades. There's two parts, and you can read about this in Luke 16, Tony, 19 through 31. One is the comfort, Abraham's bosom part. The other is torment. They go there to wait on the judgment day. And then when the judgment day comes, those in the comfort part of Hades will go to heaven, and those in the torment part of Hades will go to H-E-L-L, the bad place. And, and that, that, that's going to be the end of Hades at the judgment day. In the great white throne scene in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following, that's talking about the judgment day. It says, verse 14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So at the judgment day, that's the end of Hades. All the people in Hades which is where every, the spirit of everybody goes to wait on the judgment day. And you're right, the body is in the ground. The spirits then in the comfort part of Hades will go to heaven. The spirits in the torment part of Hades will go to the bad place. But of course, 
on the judgment day, which occurs at the same time as the second coming of Christ and in the world, there's going to be a resurrection. So your body's going to come up out of the grave and you're going to be resurrected. And then your body's going to be changed. And then first Thessalonians four says, you're going to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. You're going to go to heaven. If you're a Christian, does that answer your question, Tony? Yeah, yes, it, it it does. I I didn't know I didn't know about the Hades part. I thought the spirit went straight to heaven to be with Jesus, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know about the Hades part. <clears throat> I, uh, well, maybe maybe uh, maybe we could study that sometime. Is there any chance you might like to have a, a free phone Bible study with me sometime? We could study it in detail. Yeah, that would be nice. The only thing is that I've I'm on. I've traveled quite a bit, and I'm I'm surprised I even have enough service to hold a call this long. (laughs) So I tell you what, we'll do. I'll call you sometime after the program, and we'll try to figure out a time when you're at home, maybe that we can have a phone Bible study. Okay, I'll call you after the program, and thank you for your call, Tony. Okay, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Bye. Do you have any other questions? No, that that just. It had been on my mind because uh, my wife passed away <clears throat> in September, and uh, that, that's that been on my mind. And she was well, have a, a good, born-again Christian. Have a good evening, Tony, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your help. All right. Bye-bye. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question or comment, 877-655. Six five five six seven five five. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God by him." To me, that first part of that verse is very ironic. Remember the word irony in your English class growing up. Here we have the person who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Well, what does that mean that Jesus was made to be sin for us? I'd like to illustrate it this way. In Chicago, we have what's called the mob. That, that's organized crime. It's not just each individual person committing a crime for their own profit, but it's set up like a business. You have the, the mob boss, his second lieutenants, a hierarchical structure all the way down to the peons, and they're committing crimes, maybe through prostitution or gambling or something like that, or drugs. And instead of each person profiting from the crimes, they all they commit crime in organized fashion. All the money, the profits from the crimes goes into the coffers and they pay everybody a salary. Now suppose one day in the org mob, one of those second lieutenants, the guy's second in charge, commits a crime and the police come around looking for a person to pay for that crime. And the mob boss says to one of the peons, I want you to go confess to that crime even though you didn't commit it. Well, if he does that, the peon, the new guy in the mob, and, he's, and he serves a one-year sentence, first of all, the older, more experienced guy that committed the crime should be appreciative of him for doing that for him. But if that were to happen, you might say that the young guy was made dirty for the old guy. He took the rap. He took the fall. Not that he was guilty. He wasn't guilty, but he took the rap. He took the fall. And that's what this verse is saying about Jesus. It's not saying Jesus was guilty of our sins, not at all. He's the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. He's not He's not guilty at all, but he took the rap. He was made to be sin for us. He took the fall for our sin. He took the punishment for our sin. You see what I mean about 
learning to appreciate what Jesus went through and what he did for us, the fact that he took the penalty, the punishment for our sin, that should motivate us to serve him more faithfully. So that when you talk about some doctrinal issue and you find out here's what the Bible teaches and you got to make a change to believe and practice what the Bible says, we're going to be more willing to do it because we appreciate what Jesus has done for us. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. I like that word sanctified there. Sanctified means to make clean. And it's from the same basic Greek word as we see the word holy. 1 Peter 1, 16 says, Be holy, even as I also am holy. So there's really two aspects of sanctification, of being made clean. I like that illustration, the last verse in 2 Peter 2. It's kind of humorous to me. Uh, you, a pig is washed returning back to the mud. Why would you wash a pig? It's just a waste of time unless you're going to keep him out of the mud. And, and the parallels being made, here's a person that becomes a Christian. He gets his sins forgiven, but he goes right back into the sins of the world. He's no better off than he was before. He's actually worse off is what the context saying, is saying. So when you're talking about sanctification here, Hebrews 13, 12, the first thing is what God does. He forgives us of our sins based upon the blood of Christ. But the second thing is up to us. Peter told believers in Acts 2.38 to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So you got to be baptized to get forgiven of your sins, to be sanctified by the blood. But it won't do any good to get baptized unless you repent of your sins first. You commit to changing your life, to quit serving sin and start serving righteousness. And then after you're baptized, God expects you to follow through on that commitment. So sanctification involves getting forgiveness for your sins by the blood of Christ, washing the pig, and it also involves the pig staying out of the mud. Us, it's up to us after we become Christians. We need to stay out of the mud. We need to stay out of sin. Bible Crossfire, go ahead with your question or com comment. Laura in California. Hmm. We lost Laura. She probably may have been traveling and lost her connection. Next, I want us to go to Genesis 22. But if you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. Genesis 22 is the story of God asking Abraham to offer his son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And I think all of us know that story. Let me pick up the reading in Genesis 22, verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham and his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Well, evidently at this point, Isaac doesn't know he's supposed to be the sacrifice. He said, We got the fire and the wood, but where's the offering? Verse 8, here's Abraham's response. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. So let's remember that response by Abraham. We're going to come back to it if we have time. Verse 9, they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Well, I think it, by now Isaac knows that he's supposed to be the one to sacrifice. Abraham is tying down where the animal is normally tied down to sacrifice. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Well, Abraham's really, really going to do it. He brings the knife up. I pictured he's bringing the knife up to get leverage to come down to kill his son. He's really going to kill his son for God. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven 
and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. And he said, lay not that hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from, from me. Now I know. You know, uh, I really wouldn't want to die for any particular cause, but I'd gladly die for one of my children. So when Abraham was willing to give up his son for God, God knew that Abraham loved him more than anything else, more than his own, more than his flocks, his his barns, his money, more than even his own self, God knew. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. The ram represents Christ. Isaac represents us. Isaac was supposed to die that day. We're supposed to die. But but Jesus, the lamb of God, died for us. Abraham says, At God, where's the lamb? God will provide. He provided a lamb that time, but he provides a lamb for us so that we can be forgiven for our sins. Sorry for going so fast, but if you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study at your convenience, call or text me at 256-682-9753. Free one-hour phone Bible study, 256-682-9753.